God, you know all of our thoughts, all of our anxieties, all of the broken places in our life, all of our hopes, longings, joys. Would you take your word now as you've promised to do and apply it as a healing balm to our souls? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. And good morning. As we, as we get started, let me invite you to take your Book of Common Prayer, the Black Book, turn to Psalm 1. We just chanted it, Psalm 1, which you'll find on page 585, Psalm 1. If you want to follow along as we study today, Psalm 1, page 585. And as you're turning, let me ask you a few questions. What is the good life for you? What's the good life for you? A few mornings uh, this past week, I had the occasion to go into the office a little bit late, and um, so me, Mindy, and our um, almost two-year-old daughter, Daphne, in our pajamas, hung out in the living room with coffee and some YouTube baby videos on so that Daphne wasn't going nuts, and we all drank coffee, and yes, Daphne asked for coffee a lot. I won't tell you whether or not we give it to her, but what's, you, you, there is that sense in which, oh, I wish we could do this every day. That's the good life, you know? That's the good life. What's the good life for you? What is happiness for you? What does your life look like when everything is as it should be? Psalm 1, as you'll notice, begins with the word, what? Begins with which word? happy. Some translations read blessed, um, satiated, satisfied, fulfilled, complete. This is a psalm about the good life. Now, I wanted to speak on the psalm rather than the great text, uh, the other text we have in the lectionary today for a couple reasons. Let me give them to you briefly. I think they're important. First, I wanted to speak on the psalm because we spend a lot of time in the Psalms as the Christian Anglican tradition, don't we? In every single worship service, whether it's morning prayer, evening prayer, Compline, Holy Eucharist, we are reading, singing, chanting, praying the Psalms. Um, a little Anglican trivia, in the original Book of Common Prayer, uh, Thomas Cranmer and the, the early Anglicans had us moving through the whole book of Psalms once each month. That's actually why right above the psalm, uh, number one there in your book, it says, uh, what does it say, first morning? Yes. So you, you can actually still do it. You'll just follow along. A couple songs in the morning, a couple songs at night, that kind of thing. Um, today's Book of Common Prayer from 1979 has us moving through the Book of Psalms a few times a year if you're praying the daily office. Here's the second reason I wanted to talk about Psalm 1 today, and that's because the Book of Psalms is just that. It's a whole book. We tend to treat them like individual uh, pearls, one scholar said, each, each itself a whole, but in reality, it's a necklace. It's the whole thing, the whole book, sort of split up into five different big chapters of the Psalms. And Psalm 1, therefore, is like the book's introduction. 
That is to say, it's like a preface. It's the interpretive key. If you want to know what all the rest of the Psalms are about, you've got to read the introduction and understand it. This is Psalm 1. This is Psalm 1. So for these reasons, um, as we say in Rite 1, it seemed to meet and write in our bounden duty that we should study Psalm 1 today. All right, here we go. Psalm 1, the good life. What is the good life? Three things Psalm 1 teaches us about the good life, God's version of the good life. Here's the first thing. Let me give them to you all at once, and then we'll move briefly through them. The, The Psalm 1 teaches us the logic of the good life, the wisdom of the good life, the logic of the good life. Psalm 1 teaches us, secondly, about the source of the good life. Where does the good life come from? How can we sustain it? And then finally, Psalm 1 teaches us about the promise of the good life. So if we live the good life, where does it lead us, all right? The logic, the source, the promise of the good life, here we go. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Follow along with me. Happy are they who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat with the scornful. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. Skip down to verse 4. Here's the contrast. It is not so with the wicked. They are like chaff which the wind blows away. This is the logic of the good life. Let me put it another way. Pastor and author Tim Keller insightfully points out that in the whole Bible, have you noticed this? Happiness cannot be found directly. You can't grab happiness. Rather, Happiness is always in the Bible and only something you can get by seeking something other than happiness. Isn't that true? By seeking something more than happiness itself. So, for example, you never hear the Bible say, blessed are those who seek blessedness, right? Or happy are those who hunger and thirst after happiness. No, 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 no. It's who hunger and thirst after what? righteousness. This is the logic of the good life. Notice how Psalm 1 does this logic thing. In short, happiness, according to Psalm 1, is the byproduct of orienting your life toward God, toward righteousness, toward the way of wisdom. Now, this is actually a thing in the Bible. By that, I mean this is a technical thing. It's called wisdom literature, wisdom literature. It's its its own particular category of scriptural writing. So like the book of Proverbs comes from wisdom literature. The book of Ecclesiastes comes from wisdom literature. Some scholars think the New Testament epistle of James also has this idea of wisdom literature, but certainly Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. And wisdom literature has this certain logic to it where basically if you do it God's way, you're blessed. If you do it any other way, you're cursed. It's that simple. Two ways to do life. Righteousness, wickedness, God's way, man's way, life, death, blessing, cursing, on and on. Two ways to do life. This is wisdom literature. This is Psalm 1. Let me tell you how I like to think about it in my own life. Um, there's, There's a way in which we think about how God created the whole world in and by his wisdom. He has written his wisdom into the molecules and atoms that we can't see. Therefore, when we live 
the good life, the wise life, the way of wisdom, the righteous life, there is a sense in which creation itself is on our side. We are moving, our lives are moving with the grain of creation because God's wisdom, God's way of life has been written into the DNA, the fabric of the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the ocean. And when you obey God, they are all cheering you on. Conversely, to move against God, to do life any other way, is to have all creation itself against you, working against you. This is wisdom literature. This is the logic of wisdom literature, the logic of Psalm 1, and the logic of the good life. Happiness cannot be obtained directly. So let me ask you, what axiom, around what axiom, around what truth, what framework are you working to find the good life? And then in the words of the great psychologist, Dr. Phil, how is that, how's that working for you? God's wisdom has been written into the fabric of creation, and this is the logic of the good life, two ways to live. Here's the source of the good life, though. Psalm 1 teaches, look at verse 2. The delight of the happy ones, right? The delight of the happy ones is in the law of the Lord, and they meditate on his law day and night. Keep going, verse 3. The happy ones are like trees planted by streams of water. Now, in uh, poetry, when we're in the psalm, so think about this the rest of the year as we're in the psalms in worship. When there's an image, a tree, a mountain, uh, especially nature kind of things, it, it's, it's thick with meaning. Remember, this is a poem. Poems just drop images on you, and they just, they just sit there in your conscience as you hear the rest of the poem. They expand as you finish the poem. The meaning gets larger and larger. This, this, this image is the same way, thick with meaning. So notice the tree. Just like the stream of water gives and sustains life for that tree, right? So the law of the Lord gives and sustains the good life for those who stay close to it. The source of the good life, in other words, is the Scripture, the Bible. In the psalmist mindset, this would have been the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets, as Jesus says in the Gospels. But as the church now, we, we've been handed, uh, over all these centuries, we've been handed the whole testament of God's Word, old and new, first and second testaments put together. This is our life source. This is what gives us and sustains in us the good life. This is how we know what the good life is. It's the Bible. Christians are people who are constantly nourished by the scriptures. We read it, we sing it, we pray it, we digest it in every way we can. I didn't have time to share this at the ADM, but I want to make a, a, a note as we come upon the 500 uh, year anniversary of the Reformation on Tuesday that Thomas Cranmer, uh, his particular uh, one of the particular contributions of uh, Anglicanism and the Church of England to the Protestant Reformation was a, a regaining of the sense of the comprehensive and consistent, clear reading of the Bible every day. 
I won't make you turn there, but in the back of your prayer book, uh, there's a, a bunch of historical resources, one of which is the original preface to the 1549 Book of Common Prayer. Listen to what Cranmer says. He was concerned because the liturgy at church, in church history at that time, he felt had been a little bit corrupted, uh, that, that the word of God was sort of being drowned out. And so he writes this, the ancient church fathers so ordered the matter of the liturgy of the church that all the whole Bible, this is in the preface of the original prayer book, that all the whole Bible or the greatest part thereof should be read over once in the year, intending thereby that the clergy, and especially such as were ministers of the congregation, should, by often reading and meditating on God's word, be stirred up to godliness themselves and be more able to exhort others by wholesome doctrine and to confute them that were adversaries to the truth. I love this part. And further, that the people, that's you guys, by daily hearing of Holy Scripture read in the church should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Thomas Cranmer, original preface to the Book of Common Prayer. There's something about Anglicanism that grabbed a hold of the Bible and wanted to place it back again in the forefront of our hearts and minds. Why? Because Cranmer knew what Psalm 1 teaches. The scriptures are our life source. Let me commend two things to you by way of applying this point. The source of the good life, the scriptures. One, in the Book of Common Prayer, you'll find a way to read what we just talked about from Cranmer through a good portion of the Bible. It's called the daily office. You can find morning prayer and evening prayer. If you get confused, like me, even as a priest, by all the rubrics, you can go online, Google search morning prayer, Anglican, Episcopal. You can listen to the readings. You don't even have to open a book. Just start there. Let the scriptures be read over you in the podcast, in your car, on the way to work. Start there. Daily offices, Book of Common Prayer. Here's the second thing I want to commend you by way of applying this idea of the Bible as our life source. We want to stay close to it. We offer at the cathedral all kinds of opportunities to dig into the Bible, to learn the Bible, to study the Bible. I think of the class we were just in across the breezeway in the Great Hall. Dean Kidd, uh, right now we're, we're talking about Anglicanism's contribution to the Reformation. Wednesday nights, Dean Kidd, who's almost, you would think, cut off his own ear to play the part of Van Gogh. He wants you to know how the Bible is understood by even folks like Van Gogh. That's Wednesday nights. Tracy Barber is teaching a women's Bible study Wednesday nights. Father Adam Young just led our children in in this room, I believe, through an instructed Eucharist where you walk through the liturgy and you learn how does it help us love Jesus and know more about Jesus. There are all kinds of opportunities to dig into the Bible. Please, will you take advantage of those? The Bible is our life source. All right. Psalm 1, the logic of the good life. Psalm 1, the source of the good life is God's word. And here's the last thing the psalm teaches us. There is a promise in this psalm. There's a promise. Um, It talks about what the good life promises us in a number of ways. Let's start with verse 1 again. The promise is simply that you will be happy. You will be happy. I wish we had time this morning to talk about... um, some of the mitigating factors in why you 
aren't promised to win the lottery as a Christian, you know, uh, why you are, are, are um, uh, not promised to win every case you try as a lawyer and to uh, own, uh, you know, thousands of houses and kingdoms and whatnot, why you're not even promised necessarily for your marriage to survive or your child to not pass away from cancer. Uh, these are realities in this broken world. And that's just not the way wisdom literature works. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you get to win the lottery, right? It means you win Jesus. It means you win heaven, which is way better. In verse 3, the promise is that your life will be like that of a living tree, thriving, flourishing, whose leaves don't wither. And then at the end of verse 3, there's the plain statement, everything you do will prosper. One day when we get to heaven and look back, surely we will say, I didn't win the lottery, my marriage fell apart, I lost some children. Nevertheless, here I am in heaven, gathered with the saints from all times and all places at the throne of the God of heaven and earth. Everything I did prospered because I'm here. Down in verse 6, the promise is that you will be known by God. That word known is special. It's like an intimate, supportive, loving knowledge that God has of the righteous people. That's kind of a, a knowledge, as scholars point out, that lovers use for each other. This is the way God knows the righteous. Now, there's another promise in Psalm 1, and it's a little bit more sobering. And that is that the wicked will be destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Notice, the wicked are like chaff, which the wind blows away. They won't stand upright when judgment comes. Keep going. The very end of the psalm. The way of the wicked is what? Doomed. People of God, as hard as it may be for us to hear... This promise about the wicked being destroyed is nevertheless part and parcel of the good life. Throughout the whole Bible, we're going to say it in a moment in the creed, he's the judge of the living and the dead. But take heart, because this part of the promise of the good life means that one day our God will return and set everything right. Do you know what that means? Las Vegas, Charlottesville, Littleton, Colorado, Newtown, the evil that undergirds every act of terrorism, the evil that undergirds racism, the evil that undergirds sexism, the evil that contributes to world poverty and abuse, violence, hatred, selfishness, all of this evil. And those who live by it, Psalm 1 says along with the rest of scriptures, the wind will blow them away. They will be nothing. They will be empty. They will be weightless. They will not be known to God. They will be doomed. So take heart. The promise of the good life is this. One day, God will make the righteous flourish like a thriving tree, but will bring the wicked to justice and judgment. I wanna close just by reminding you that the Christian church reads the Psalms not as ends unto themselves, 
right? The Psalms, like the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, point us forward to Jesus. And so when I think of the good life in Psalm 1, the logic of it, the source of it, the promise of it, I can't help it here reverberating in my ears. The words of Jesus in St. John's Gospel, chapter 14, when Jesus says, there are two ways to live, God's way and your way, and Jesus says, I am the way. When I think about the source of the good life, God's word, the scriptures, I think of Jesus' next statement. I am what? The truth. And when I think about eternal life, the promise of the good life, I think about Jesus' last statement. I am the life. And so we come now to the holy altar where every Sunday we have a chance to begin or begin again our pursuit of the good life. And how is that? Because we take into ourselves the body and blood, soul and divinity of the way, the logic, into ourselves the truth, and into ourselves the life, the good life himself in the person of Jesus at God's holy altar. What is happiness to you? What is the good life to you? Together, let's take our hungry souls to God who will fill them with happiness forever through Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.